Hey, go ahead and grab a seat this morning. Uh, my name is Adam. It's great to be with you. I'm one of the pastors here at Meadowland Church. And we're going to dive right in this morning. Uh, we're beginning a brand new series on the book of Elijah. And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided for you, that'll be on page 299. If you brought your own Bible, we'd love for you to be in that. If you want to go digital and turn on your Bible, we would love for you to just have the Word of God before you this morning. It's so good uh, to be with you on this great Sunday morning. Well, I think as we begin this study on the life of Elijah, uh, most of us already probably know some things about who he is and um, some things that got accomplished through him. But I think as we uh, slow down a little bit and, and as we get back into the scripture and study the life of Elijah, I think we begin to learn some things about who God is and what he is like. I think we begin to learn some things about ourselves and how we relate to God. I think some of those things are specifically about our life, your life, and my life. How do we relate to God when things get difficult? How do we relate to God when it seems as though the, the world is falling apart and spinning out of control? Uh, because one of the things that's really interesting about Elijah is he was a godly man that lived during a very wicked time uh, underneath the authority of a corrupt, evil government. And in fact, for the last couple of weeks or so, um, we've been in Scripture, it seems like we've been talking about the nation of Israel quite a bit, and um, we've been talking about Israel during certain times being broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In Elijah's time, uh, it's the same thing. Uh, Israel is in two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, Steve, you know, if you guys were here for that, had like the beautiful air map thing that he would do, and I'm not qualified to do that. So I'm just going to use a real map and show you um, the, the kingdom of Israel that's divided into two. Uh, the blue is the northern kingdom. Uh, that's Israel. And so that's uh, Israel, where, which is the, has the uh, capital of Samaria. The yellow is the nation of Judah, which has the capital of Jerusalem. Okay, In Elijah's time, he lived in the north. He was in the, the blue kingdom on the map. He was part of Israel, uh, particularly in the area of Samaria, although you're going to hear some other places talked about this morning that are in that blue area of that map. Here's, here's why that's so important, is the blue area of that map, northern Israel, has had 19 consecutive evil kings surpassing 200 years of history. As we read scripture, we see that each king kind of gets progressively more wicked, and each king's rule and authority and leadership uh, gets worse and worse until we land at a guy named King Ahab. And King Ahab becomes king, and he becomes, like his predecessor, a very wicked man, and in fact marries a woman named Jezebel. Maybe you've heard your name before. The Bible says that she is a a wicked woman. In fact, on Ahab's resume, he could actually write, I've done more wicked in the eyes of God uh, than any other person. And that's actually what scripture says, that he was the most wicked person uh, in the eyes of God, and that he did more evil in the eyes of God than any other at his time. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 to 32 say this. It says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which was built in Samaria. 
And so one of the things we, we learn about King Ahab right off the bat is his foreign relations policy was marriage. And so uh, he had an issue with another country, and, and instead of trying to work that out through delegations, he decided he would do it through marriage. And he married Jezebel, who uh, believed in Baal, who was a, a false god, hostile to the God of the nation of Israel. And what Scripture says is that, is that Ahab kind of buys into this, begins to believe in Baal. And not only that, but in the capital city, the nation of Israel, he begins to build altars to Baal. What we know historically is uh, all kinds of wicked, crazy things happen under the leadership of King Ahab. In fact, it's normal to hear about things like scandals, uh, promoted and enforced idol worship. In fact, really, it's Jezebel's master plan to replace the God of Israel with her God, Baal. And underneath this pagan worship of Baal, there's really wicked things that become normal and become promoted. Things like uh, sacrificing children to Baal. Uh, Things like committing the act of adultery. Uh, Doing evil, wicked things that are breaking God's commandments become normal and encouraged and enforced underneath Baal. That you would actually do these things and say, hey, I'm just doing these things as acts of worship. And because God is a jealous God, because God is a God that pursues us, because our God is a God that defends his glory. God then goes to war with the king. And what God wants to do is reveal to the king and reveal to his people who he is and and what he's like so that he could pursue people so that they might be in relationship with him, that that they would know who he is and worship him and be saved by him. And what God does, rather than raising up an army, is he does what he often does. He raises up a person, someone who would be faithful to him, someone who would follow him, someone that would take a stand and listen to his voice and do the things that he commands him to do. And we begin to see in 1 Kings chapter 17 that God begins to raise up a man that he wants to do some incredible things through So the people would know who he is. And so people would return to him and that he would actually defeat this false god, Baal. Now what's interesting is God may be trying to do the same thing in this very room. That there may be some of you here that God is calling you, that he is speaking to you, that his desire and his plan for you is to use you in a very significant way. Maybe you'd be a student and you're here today and what God is calling you to do is take a stand in your school for things like purity and integrity and loving other people. Maybe you're a business person and God's calling you to some standards in the marketplace that you would set the standard for stewardship and generosity that instead of ripping people off, you would actually serve people and handle your money well. Uh, Maybe it's God has you at a specific workplace next to a specific person at a desk because he wants you to do something in that person's life. Maybe you're here and it's a family. Maybe you're the only person in your family that believes in Jesus. And maybe God wants to use you right where you are to take a stand for him and to point your friends and your loved ones to Jesus so they might know him and be saved by him. Because one of the things we see in Scripture is that in God's economy— One person can always make a difference. And that's especially true in 1 Kings chapter 17, that God calls one person who would follow him and be obedient to him, that God would do something incredible in him and then do something incredible through him, which is where we meet Elijah in the story of 1 Kings chapter 
17. In fact, this is how the Bible introduces Elijah to us in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. What's interesting about this is we don't know a whole lot about Elijah. In fact, there may be some of you here that when you hear me speak about God using you, that God raising you up, that God wants to do something incredible in you and through you, and say, well, I don't have the credentials or the resume. I'm not sure you've got the right person. One of the things that's interesting to me is Elijah didn't have all the credentials. He didn't have the resume. In fact, we don't know that much about him. And what I would argue is this is really important because as we're introduced to Elijah, we know two things about him. We know his name and we know where he's from. We know that he's from a place called Tishbe in Gilead, which would make him a Tishbite. And what's significant about that is modern scholars have no idea where any of that is. And so that didn't last through the ages. In fact, you would say maybe he was from the sticks somewhere, that maybe he was a place that wasn't important at all. Unlike other biblical towns and cities that we can say, hey, that used to be that place, and now it's this place. We have no idea where Tishbe was. And what you kind of get the idea that Elijah is a normal guy, an ordinary guy who serves an extraordinary God. And what we learned that from is his name. The name Elijah literally means Jehovah is my God. That in an environment, in an atmosphere of false worship, of the worship of Baal, Elijah stands an opponent to that. That his very name means Jehovah is my God. That if you want to know who I worship, if you want to know who I'm with, if you want to know who I'm for, if you want to know who I'm obedient to, it's Jehovah. That by his very name, he's a man on a mission. And as we enter 1 Kings chapter 17, we see that God has been doing some things in Elijah's life. That God has been speaking to Elijah and saying some incredible things to him because this is what happens. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 says, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And this ordinary guy from no special place stands before the king and says, The message I have for you is, delivered by me, but it's really from God, and what he wants you to know is there'll be no rain. There's a drought coming. In fact, not only will it be no rain, it'll be so dry that there won't even be dew on the grass in the morning, that it's going to get dry around here. Now, this is especially troublesome for the northern kingdom of Israel because its whole economy is agricultural. Animals, crops, trading of those. And what he tells the king is there's going to be all kinds of bad things happening. The the source of your economy, the source of your agriculture is going to dry up. You're not going to be able to raise animals. You're not going to be able to dry. You're not going to be able to raise crops. You're not going to be able to water your animals. It's going to get dry around here. Now, this is especially troublesome for Ahab, who believes in Baal, because Baal happens to be the god of rainfall, okay, the God of thunder, the God of fertility, of growth. And so Elijah stands before Ahab and says, hey, here's the deal. I know who you worship, and you know who I worship, and what my God says is that as long as he lives, 
There won't be any rain. There won't be any water. And there's a bad thing coming. That if our modern news stations were to report on this, we would say things like, there's a recession coming, which will lead to a depression. They would talk about things like the death rate increasing and unemployment at an all-time high. That we would begin to buy canned foods and water because uh, things like electricity and gasoline and propane would no longer be around. But this is a death sentence for a nation. And Elijah stands before the king and he says, God has told me that it will not rain, there won't even be dew on the ground until he tells me to say the word. And God raises up Elijah to prove to a king, to prove to an entire nation, to maybe prove to you and me that he is the one true living God. And now this is interesting. Because I think about Elijah and all the things that he accomplished, and I think about you and me, and I think, I wonder how many of us desire to be used like Elijah. Like, hey, God, I'm available. If you want to use me, use me. If you want to use me as your voice piece to go to our current Congress or our current president in the middle of this shutdown and deliver a message, I'm yours. And I got a couple things I might like to add anyway. So if you would send me, that'd be awesome. And I wonder how many of us would say, hey, God, if you would use me in a miraculous way, if you'd give me the, the power to say rain, and it would rain, and if no rain, then it wouldn't rain. I wonder how many of us would want to be used by God in a powerful way. That we would say to ourselves that we literally hear the voice of God, and then we do what he tells us to do, and miraculous things happen. And for most of us who grew up in church or went to Sunday school or have been around the Bible for a while, we know about the accolades, we know about the victories and the things that Elijah sees. But what most of us miss is what happens next in 1 Kings 17. In fact, if we go past this too fast, it can seem confusing because what happens is, is Elijah stands before the king and tells him, hey, something's coming. My God is challenging your God. There'll be no rain, there'll be no dew. And then God speaks to Elijah and tells him this in verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, being Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The God starts this showdown. He invites this cage match. He's the one that sends Elijah to the king to say, my God's going to prove that he's greater than your God, that he's better than your God, that he's more powerful than your God. And then God speaks to Elijah and says, hey, now that you've delivered the news, get out of Dodge. I want you to kind of wave the white flag and retreat. Now, I think for Elijah, this was probably a little bit confusing. Like, hey, you sent, you sent me to the capital, and I got a meeting with the king. I told him what you told me. Now let's do this thing. And God tells Elijah, there's something else that I want you to do. I want you to leave from there. And I think what we begin to learn is that God wanted to do some things in Elijah's life before he did some things through Elijah. And then before Elijah ends up on the mountaintop calling out the false prophets of Baal, first he needed some sort of experience in meeting with God that would change who he is. I think we begin to discover that God always works in us before he works through us. And our God is a God who has plans for us, but he always prepares us for what he has planned for us. 
In fact, I think what happens in the rest of 1 Kings 17 is God's way of preparing Elijah. And I think we see Elijah go through four seasons of preparation. That there's four ways during four different times that God uses Elijah. Now, I know the screen says three, but somebody gave a free coupon this morning for an extra point, so I'm going to give them four, okay? Four seasons of preparation. And this is my perspective. This is how I see this. When I read the scripture, this is what jumps out at me. So I want to take time this morning and look at these seasons of preparation because I think God uses these same seasons of preparation in your life and in my life. The first season is a season of isolated pain. Isolated pain. First uh, Kings chapter 17, verse 2 and 3. Let's read this again. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Now what's interesting is you might go, how in the world do you get isolated pain off of that? Well, different translations translate the words differently. And what's interesting, the ESV, the Bible that we use at Middle Church, uses the word Cherith, C-H. But some other translations use the word Kerith, K-E-R-I-T-H, ravine. And the Kerith ravine means cut off from blessing or to cut down. One of the things that's interesting is that when God tells Elijah to tell the king, hey, there's a famine coming, there's a drought coming, he says, I want you to go to the place that's cut off. I want you to go to the place that's cut down. And see, I believe that God wanted to begin to do some things in Elijah's life. That I think before he used him publicly, he wanted to humble him privately. That he needed to accomplish some stuff in Elijah's heart. That he needed to increase Elijah's confidence in him, increase his faith in him. That maybe Elijah needed a bigger, clearer picture of who God is so that he could follow him and trust him no matter what God said next. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting is that it seems like God is leading Elijah to a place where he has to become fully dependent on him. Where God says, this can't be about you. This can't be about your giftedness and your skill set. You can't rely on yourself to get through this. But God is leading Elijah to a place where he could cut him down of some things, that he could strip him of some things, so that, that Elijah would become more dependent on God. See, what's interesting about you and me is we don't normally see these kind of things as preparation. Uh, we're Americans, which means we spend a lot of money and put a lot of time and energy into not feeling pain. But we don't like to see things that make us uncomfortable. We don't like to experience suffering and conflict and pain. We, we want to isolate that stuff and, and try to protect ourselves. And when those things happen in our lives, we try to minimize the amount of hurt and suffering and conflict we might feel. And one of the things that's interesting is we begin to discover that sometimes God uses the most intimate, the most painful, the biggest struggles, the hardest conflicts to prepare you and to prepare me and to prepare Elijah for what he has planned for us. And see, sometimes what we try to do is we try to say, I don't want to go through this. 
That there could even be times and things. Maybe you're going through some of these things now where you go, God, save me from this. God, protect me from this. God, rescue, you, rescue me from this. And what God is really saying is, I need to lead you through this so you can be prepared for what I'm planning for you. I want to accomplish something in you as you walk through this. And that sometimes God would actually do us a misservice if he would rescue us from the things we're going through because then it would fail to build up inside of us what God intends. In fact, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says it this way. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So I think most of us would desire to be used by God in a mighty way, but we'll never get there unless we allow God to prepare us through different seasons. And see, most of us wouldn't pray for that. Most of us wouldn't desire that. I don't think any of you woke up this morning and said, please, God, lead me to the Kareth Ravine in my life. Please cut me off from blessing or please cut me down. But the reality is, is when we experience these things, that it actually could be God at work in us. In fact, a story to maybe help you see it a different way. When I moved up to South Dakota, my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to serve under a great pastor whom I love, and we stay in, uh, we stay in contact till this day. And I'll never forget when I heard him tell the story. And I waited till the day that I could share this story, and today's that day. And he said, one time speaking to me, he said, I want to tell you a parable. And he said, there was a bird who was flying south for the winter. Now, this is, in your mind, it can be whatever bird you want it to be, okay? Make it personal. If you want an eagle, have an eagle. If you want a little Tweety bird, that's fine. And he said, there's a bird that was supposed to fly south for winter, and instead of flying with the rest of the birds, he procrastinated, got a little distracted, and kept thinking, I have time, and he left late on his journey, and as he was flying over the great plains of South Dakota, he got caught up in a snowstorm. And as he got in that snowstorm, he was flapping his wings, flapping his wings, flapping his wings, and all of a sudden he began to realize that he was losing altitude, that no matter how hard he flapped his wings, he just couldn't get the altitude he needed. And he realized that his wings were freezing, and that, that he could no longer fly, and so he crashed lands into a field. And he rolls a little bit, and he stops, and he kind of wraps himself up with his wings, and he goes, this is where I will die. I'm going to freeze to death unless somebody comes and saves me. And so he begins to tweet and cry and ask for help. And as he's freezing to death, wrapped in his little wings, he's going, tweet, 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 tweet. And then he notices this large animal coming towards him. And as it gets closer and closer through the snow, he can begin to see that it's a cow. And this cow begins to walk over him, and he thinks, this cow doesn't see me, and I'm too, afra- I'm too afraid, and I'm too cold to get the cow's attention. But then the cow did something he, he didn't think he would do. The cow stopped over him, and he thought, maybe this cow is going to save my life. And the cow did something completely uninspected. He dropped a massive cow pie directly on the bird. And the little bird still freezing, now covered by a massive cow pie, thought to himself, this is how I'm going to die? This is, this is it? 
And as he began to weep and cry, he all of a sudden began to realize that the cow pie was really warm. In fact, he could begin to feel his wings again. In fact, all of a sudden he wasn't cold at all this morning. He was he, he was warm. He, he was warming up, and he began to become so excited. He thought, I can take flight, and I can go meet my friends and my family in the south where I belong. The problem is, is this was a massive cow pie. And so he began to do everything he could do, and he, he, he created a little clearing, a little hole in the cow pie, and he, he stuck his head out looking if there was someone that would come and help him. And he just began to tweet, 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 help me, help me, help me. And along came a cat. And he thought, surely this cat will help me. And the, the cat began to lick him and clean him. And the, the cat began to slowly make the hole bigger so the bird could get out. And just as the bird thought, I'm going to fly to the south, the cat killed and ate the bird. Three lessons. Lesson number one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Lesson number two, not everyone who digs you out of manure is really your friend. Lesson number three, sometimes it's best just to keep your big mouth shut. And the only reason I tell you that story is because maybe there's some of us that are experiencing that Kareth Ravine moment. And you're in the midst of that pain, that conflict, that struggle. You're in that situation that you don't know why God has allowed you to be in that. And you've been... You've been, you felt so isolated and you felt so alone and you've been so frustrated. And the question has been, why God? Why God? Why God? And see, maybe the best question is, God, what are you trying to accomplish in me? God, what are you trying to do in my heart? God, what are you trying to reveal to me? God, what are you trying to show me about you? And what are you trying to show me about myself. But sometimes when we go through the moments, rather than asking the question, why? The question is, God, what are you trying to do in me? The great theologian and writer A.W. Tozer says it this way. He said, it is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And if that's you this morning, you're going through that season, then be encouraged because more than likely, the reason you're going through that is because God is trying to accomplish something in you to prepare you for what he has next. The second season we see Elijah go through is a season of total dependence. First Kings chapter 17, verse 4. God tells Elijah, hey, I want you to go to the Kareth Ravine. And then he tells him, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and he lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And one of the things God does inside of Elijah is he begins to lead him to a place where Elijah would see and experience and begin to trust God's supernatural providence for him. In the middle of a drought where there's no rain and there's no dew, 
God leads him to a place that's called cut off from blessing, but it's in that place that he blesses him. In a nation that has no water, I'll provide you water. But not only that, God led Elijah to a place where Elijah had to trust him for the food that he would have each day. And God gave him only enough for the day. The birds came in the morning, a little steak, a little bread. And they came at night, a little steak, a little bread. God didn't give Elijah any more than he needed for that day because I believe God was building in him. I believe God was revealing to him that we can trust God for everything we need to today, that we need for today. And then God was revealing to Elijah and revealing to you and to me that when we can no longer depend on the things we used to depend on, we can always depend on God. This is new for Elijah. Elijah used to be able to go to the grocery store. He used to be able to pick his food. He used to be able to go to the well and get some water. But when life turns upside down and you can no longer depend on the things you used to depend on, that God is faithful, that God is true, and that we can depend on him, and that God will always give us what we need for today. And that you and that I can trust God for today. And we can trust him for our provision, for our finances, for our lives, for our families, for our marriages, for our children, for our nation, for our church. That we can trust God to provide exactly what we need for today. And God is giving Elijah this experience to say, if I lead you to it, I'll lead you through it. If it's my will for you, I'll pay the bill for you. But you have to depend on me, and you have to trust me. And if you put your confidence in me, I'll reveal myself to you as always dependent, that you can always trust me, that I am a reliable God who always comes through on his word. The next season, season three, is a season of unconditional obedience. Because God leads Elijah to this place. He's been feeding him and he's been doing well. He, he hasn't felt the effects of the drought or the famine or the economic crash. God has protected him. And then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah again and says this. It says, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And this is what God says to Elijah. He goes, hey, I want you to leave the brook. I want you to leave this place of safety. I want you to go. I want you to get out of this area of past blessing so I can get you into a place of future blessing." And what God begins to do in Elijah's life is say, hey, what I told you yesterday was good for yesterday, but I want to do something for you today. And what's interesting about your life and my life is we can get stuck in a rut where we can begin to trust God for the things he did two, three, four, five years ago, but we don't trust God to do the things we need him today. And so what God does in Elijah, he goes, listen, I need you to be obedient to me. And I want to lead you, and one of the ways I'm going to lead you is in the beginning, I led you by the, 
the resources I provided you with, but sometimes God guides us by the lack of resources that he provides us with. That God wanted to move Elijah from the place he was because he had something better in store from him. And sometimes God guides us by what he provides. And sometimes God guides us by what he does not provide. God says, Elijah, I'm not done with you yet. The goal isn't for you to stay here. It was for you to stay here for a while, but I'm going to dry up the river and the birds aren't coming anymore because I have more in store for you. And sometimes God leads you, and sometimes God guides me, sometimes by what he provides us with. But sometimes he guides us by what he does not provide us with. Sometimes God dries up the stream and sometimes he stops sending the blessing because he wants us to make the move to where he wants us to be. And God's not manipulating Elijah. He's not trying to be mean to Elijah. He's not being cruel to Elijah. But this is grace. This is love. This is mercy Don't stay here because this isn't where I want you to be anymore. I'm drying up the resources so that you would go where I want you to be next. So Elijah begins to go, and he goes to Zarephath, and he meets a woman there at the gate, and she's collecting some sticks. And he says to her in verse 11, as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, oh, excuse me, let me back up, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little of cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And as she went and did as Elijah said, and she went and her and her household ate for many of days, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord he spoke by Elijah. This is fascinating. God God sends Elijah to this woman and he says, hey, I'm here because this is a divine appointment. God said I'm supposed to talk to you and Uh, Can I get a little bit of water and can I get a little bit of bread? And she goes, I can help you with the water, but I can't give you any bread. She's like, literally, I'm out here ready to get some sticks to start a fire to go home and bake my last bread. And once we make these biscuits, my son and I will eat our biscuits and then we will die because we no longer have resources and we no longer have food. And she goes, I can't give you a biscuit. I don't even have enough biscuit for my family. And see, this has to be huge for Elijah. Because up to this point, this is just about him responding to God's word, right? I want you to go here and say this. 
I want you to go here and do that. Now I want you to leave there and go see this woman. And now, all of a sudden, he has to do something. He has some ministry involved in this. And he goes, here's the deal. I believe because of what I've experienced that God is faithful. And I put my confidence in him, not just for me, but I think I can put my confidence in him for you. And this is what is going to happen here. See, if you would go home and put God first, if you would go home and not make biscuits for you and your family, but if you would go home and make a biscuit for the Lord as he commands you, and if you bring me that water and if you bring me that biscuit, you'll never run out of oil and you'll never run out of flour as long as it does not rain. See, that's a test of his faith. There's a margin for failure here. What happens if she goes home and she makes the biscuit and there's no more flour and there's no more oil? And Elijah steps out in faith and says, I trust that God will do what he says he'll do, not only in my life, but I believe God will do what he says he will do in your life. And he tells the woman, what you have, and no matter how little it is, is enough when God's involved. He goes, when God shows up a little bit of flour, and when God shows up a little bit of oil, it can last a really long time. And I don't think Elijah would ever got that. I don't think Elijah would ever said that. I don't think Elijah would have ever spoken words of prophecy to this woman's food pantry. If he hadn't gone through a season of pain, if he hadn't gone through a season of dependence, being fed by birds, if he hadn't gone through the season of growing his faith and seeing who God is. And finally, the fourth season that Elijah goes through is a season of preparation for ministry. Preparation for ministry. Now, what happens next is amazing. Because for what happens next, Elijah has no reference point. Uh, there's no manual on how to happen this. That No one taught him what to do. I think we see Elijah completely convinced by who God is. Uh, completely understanding God's power, completely motivated by the fact that he believes God is a God who can be trusted and that God is a God that follows through on his word. And what happens next, Elijah just reacts to out of faith. And this is what happens, 1 Kings 17, 17. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him means he's dead. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. She's freaking out. Is this, you, is this your God? Is this what you're about? I've been feeding you my biscuits. And now my son's going to die because you're here and because of what God's doing? Is this, is this really what's going on? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O oh my Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child, literally lays over this son. And three times he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. 
And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. It's the first place in Scripture where we see God bring somebody back from the dead. This is before the New Testament. This is before Elijah had any idea that God even was in that kind of business. But he believed he could. And he believed that he would. In fact, because Elijah had gone through these seasons of pain and desperation and obedience, he had an incredible faith. That he just believed God could, and he believed that if he prayed, that God would, and that God had already given him the power to say some things, and that God had always been reliable and always come through up to this point. So Elijah goes, I'm just going to trust you, and I'm just going to put my faith in you, and God, I believe you can, and I believe you will. And Elijah starts a personal ministry of bringing people back from the dead. Now remember when we started this, I told you that Elijah was known as just Elijah, a nobody, who loved the Lord and was from nowhere, a place that we don't even know that's around anymore. And this is what shifts, I think, in 1 Kings 17. Is by the end of 1 Kings 17, his identity shifts. How we know Elijah changes because of what God has done in him, because of the seasons that he's been through. Watch what the woman says to him, verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. That Elijah is no longer known as where he is from. Elijah is now known from who he is from. That we know Elijah is a godly man who was sent by God, and in his mouth is truth. And see, what I believe for you, and what I believe for me, and what I believe for this church, is that our God is a God who wants to do things in us before he does things through us. That the God is just as passionate about an intimate relationship that we have with him as he is about using us to take his gospel and to take his message outside these walls. And see, that's the thing that I love about Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, I want to use you. He says, I want you. That we could be in a relationship, that we could be with one another, that you would know me, that you would worship me, that you would grow in your faith journey. And I believe that God is a God who does incredible things in us before he does incredible things through us. And because I, I believe that life is a journey, I know that there's probably many of us here on different points of the journey and the question would be is, will you allow God to accomplish his work in you? Would you, God, would you allow God to use that Kareth Ravine painful moment to produce character and steadfastness and joy in you? Would you allow God in the season you're in right now, maybe you're just learning to trust in him, would you allow him to complete that work in you so you could trust him more and put your confidence in him more? Is God speaking to you? Has God told you that, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to start doing this, or I want you to stop doing this. And the question is, is would you go through that a season of obedience? Would you say yes to him, and would you allow him to be the main priority in your life? That nothing would influence you more. Nothing would come before your desire to worship him. Maybe God's calling you to begin to serve and get into ministry.
would you allow him to complete that work in you? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. Well, I think the reason you're probably here this morning is because he desires you. Because he wants to have a relationship with you. Because the reality is, is that you and I sin and we're guilty of our sin and that sin separates us from God. And God sent his son Jesus who would die on the cross for your sins and for my sins and he would rise again so that we could have life, salvation, and freedom. And the question is, would you allow God to start that work in you? Or would you today give your life to him, confess of your sin and repent of it and ask Jesus to save you and become your savior? Because God always wants to do something in you before he does something through you. I want to transition for a second and talk about us as a church. Because I believe that God operates this way when it comes to us as a corporate, a corporate church. What I mean by corporate is that you and I are individuals, but when we come together, we are the church. And so I believe God wants to work in your life on an individual level, but God wants to work in our life on a together level. And see, all throughout the history of Meadowland Church, we've been marked by a deep desire to see lives changed by Jesus and disciples made. And I think we've also been marked by God's faithfulness to us. And that God has always been faithful to us. And I think if you look at Meadowland's history, you would see that uh, we've always had these transitional moments that come up in our history where we've had to step out in faith and trust God. And that in those moments, he desired to work in us as a church so that later he could work through us as a church. In fact, I told you last week that I had two things I wanted to announce to you, and that's what I would like to announce to you now. The first thing I want to announce to you is that right now at Meadowland Church today, we're beginning a capital campaign. That we're trying to raise some money to accomplish some things. And the reason we're trying to raise this money is because we believe we're at this moment where God wants to do some things in us so he could do some things through us. And see, this isn't the first time we've been here. I think about when Meadowland Church was nothing more than a dream. That God had called some people together to, that were like-minded and thought, we'd love to see a church like Meadowland planted in northern McHenry County. And God was faithful. And lives were changed and disciples were made. And God first worked in that group of people before he worked through them to start the church. I think about in 2008 where Meadowland Church had a complete transition in leadership. And we were about 30 to 35 people on a Sunday morning. And the question was, what will we do? And God was completely faithful. And he was with us and he was for us. And God worked in that group of people so that later he could work through us as a church. The beginning of 2000, end of 2008, 2009, the elders at Meadowland Church asked me if I would consider, instead of going and planting a church, because I was only going to stay at Meadowland Church for a year as an associate pastor, I was going to go plant a church. And they asked if I would consider sticking around and becoming the lead pastor here, and we prayed through that, and we had loved this church, and we loved these people, and so we said yes. And three weeks after saying yes to Meadowland Church, the Johnsburg High School, which had been our meeting place for like six years, called me and said, we're kicking you out. And you have three weeks to get out. And I just remember calling my wife saying, I will be the shortest-lived lead pastor in the history of churches. 
Like, they'll write a book about me, how to kill a church in three weeks. Number one, say yes. Number two, lose your meeting location. And we began to freak out a little bit, and we used that moment of fear and uncertainty that I'll never forget this elder board that we had and the group of people who were with us in membership. We just dug in, and we began to pray. And we just knew that God was at work, that he wanted to do something, and God worked in us and moved us to this barn. And God did incredible things by moving us here that all of a sudden he began to work through us that our church doubled in size in like two weeks. And all we did was stop meeting at the high school and we came here. God was faithful. And I think we're at that time now where God wants to do something in us and that he would use the decisions we make. That if we would allow him to grow our faith if we would increase our trust and our confidence in him, that he would use that and work through us. In fact, this capital campaign has three main objectives. And you've got a really cool postcard we handed out for you. But we have more of those. If you want one for you, if you want one to hand out to people, if you want one to put in the mail to friends and families, we'll give you as many of those as you'd like. But on the back of that, you've got the three objectives. The first one is, this is really about the people of Meadowland Church growing spiritually. Uh, This is about us growing in the act of giving. That it's not just about a dollar amount, but it's about you and it's about me growing in our confidence and our trust in God. Because Jesus says really crazy things like, where your treasure is, that's also where your heart will be. Which means before I can find money in my bank account for anything, I first have to find it in my heart. And so this is an opportunity for us as a church, for us as a people, to take a look at our lives and to take a look at our finances and say, God, do I trust you with this? Does my bank account, does my checkbook show that you're my Savior and that you're my Lord and that I trust you? And we think as we would begin to go through that process as individuals that it would somehow grow us. This would be just about as much about spiritual growth as it would anything else. The second objective is this is we want to secure this property for both current ministry and future ministry. So we've always looked at this barn as temporary housing for Meadowland Church. In fact, the way we've invested money in this place has been with a temporary mindset. Everything we've invested in here, other than the paint we put on the walls, has been with the idea that we could somehow take this with us when we left. And so like, we put in the TVs, we put in the screens, even the air conditioners, All are mobile. They can come down and go with us if we have to move. What we would like to do is say, we're not moving anywhere. That this is the home of Meadowland Church today, and this will be the uh, future of Meadowland Church tomorrow when we build on through another campaign. And so if we could raise this money and do some tasks, the task we need to do is put in a new well. We need to put in a retention detention pond. We're not exactly sure what the right lingo as that is. I've heard it like 16 different ways. We need a dry space for water to flow. And then we need to install a new, better septic tank. And if we could do those three things, and the reason we have to do those three things is because the county would like us to do them, and they're all in the same permit. If we could do those things, we safeguard ministry today, and we safeguard ministry here tomorrow. And more excitingly, the third thing it does is it lays the foundation for additional fair square footage at Meadowland Church. Uh, we have this really interesting thing that happens, that even on Sundays, 
when adult attendance is down, we can actually show you this in our numbers, that we've had adult Sundays that are down, and there's more kids downstairs. And I don't know how that happens, other than some of your like five and six-year-old kids are hijacking your vehicles and driving their friends here, okay? So you might want to start checking mileage on cars on Sunday morning, because I don't know, somehow that happens, but our kids are completely out of space downstairs, And as we've tried to look into maybe mobile classrooms or a temporary building structure, modular building, uh, the county comes back to us and says, well, septic tank, water retention. So if we were able to do these things, we would actually be able then to take some ground and maybe get some space for our kids sooner than later because that's what we're passionate about. And we want our children's ministry to be able to do the ministry that God's called them to do. Now here's the thing, to do all of that, we need to raise $100,000. And we are trying to raise $100,000 as fast as possible. And in fact, just trying to be transparent with you, I'm hoping we can raise this $100,000 by the end of the year. Now, uh, that probably scares some of you a little bit. Uh, there's some of you right now that may be entering a season of isolated pain, just like Elijah. Um, and and here's, here's what I would tell you. At Meadowland Church right now, we have... 75 families they give consistently, okay? So 75 families are giving units that give consistently. So just to give you some perspective, if every single one of those families were able to give $1,000 for this, we'd be at $75,000. And I'm not saying, do I want you to give $1,000? No, for some of you, I want you to give $10,000. And for some of you, I understand that 1000 is maybe something that you can't do. And at Meadowland Church, it's never been about equal giving, but it is about equal sacrifice. That God calls us to give sacrificially and to give generously. And we see Jesus talk about the widow's might, that the, the Pharisees, well, who gave more? So she did. The sacrifice was greater. And so for some of you, I don't want you to get lost in the numbers because it's not the number that counts, it's your heart that counts. And if we had 75 giving units, all give $1,000, I'd give us 75000 and you would say, but that's not enough. Well, here's the second thing I want to announce to you. We have a family who's already dedicated to give us a $30,000 match grant, which means they will match dollar for dollar the first $30,000 that comes in, which means if we could give 75 giving units to each give $1,000, we would actually have more than enough come in. And maybe if everybody can't give 1000 you know, if 200 people give 500 bucks, it's enough. And so what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to consider giving an above and beyond donation to Meadowland Church and the Unleashed Division Fund, okay? I'm so thankful for your generous tithing. I'm so thankful for the way that you guys give. What I'm asking is, would you go above and beyond and consider making a donation of the Unleashed Division Fund? If we can raise this $1,000, we're going to do these projects as fast as possible. And I think God would use what we're doing today. I think God wants to work in us so that he could work through us. Now, here's the thing. Because you might ask the question, well, what do I get out of this? Well, I think you would get some spiritual growth. I think you'd get to be a part of the history of Meadowland Church. I even think you would get to see the benefits of additional resources for kids and ministry. 
But I think this is another thing that you would get. See, for some of you, you don't remember when Meadowland Church was started because you weren't here. And for some of you, you don't remember that leadership transition because you weren't here. And for some of you, you don't remember moving into the barn because you weren't here. And what that means is, when God worked in those groups of people that went through those, trans- those transitions, what God did in them was to benefit you so he could work through them. So that one day you could be reached, so that one day you could enter the history, so that one day you could be blessed by Meadowland Church. And a piece of this is that you and I have the opportunity to be part of a group of people that God would work in so in the future we could see all the people that he wants to reach because he would work through what he's doing in us. If you've got questions, if you have comments, I'm available. I think most of our elder board is at the service and available. I'm asking you to consider giving to unleash the vision because I believe we're at a place where God wants to work in this church so that he can once again work through this church. Let's pray. Father God, as Pastor Steve comes up to lead us through communion this morning, God, we just remember how good you are. A God, that you are a God that cannot be contended. A God, that you are a God that reveals himself so that we can know you and worship you and understand you. A God, I thank you that you're a God that desires a relationship with us. That you are a God who sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and raise again so that we might worship you and have life through you and have salvation, which comes through Christ alone. God, I'm also thankful that you're a God that works in the hearts and the lives of his people. And God, I pray that for all of us, no matter where we're at on our journey, God, that we would allow you to complete the work that you're doing in us today. That God, if there's those of us here that need to say yes to you and come to you for salvation, that today would be that day. God, that there's those of us who are going through painful moments, the Karith Ravine, God, I pray that we would allow you to lead us through that so that we wouldn't lack anything, but we'd be complete. God, if there's those of us that know that you're calling us to be obedient to you, God, that we would surrender and be obedient to you. God, for those of us that need to become dependent on you, God, I pray that we would allow you to complete that work. God, I pray for Meadowland Church as we look to our future and as we look to this project. God, we believe that you will provide. And God, I believe that you will provide for us by your people. And God, I pray that you would help us to love you. And God, I pray that you would help us to be available to you. God, all of us desire for you to work in us. God, help for us to take pleasure when you're working in us. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.